0: Hebrews 12. It's part of our series that we've been pursuing over these months. And uh, it's page 12, 10 if you're looking in the church Bibles. Hebrews chapter 10 and these first 13 verses. And uh, it's under the heading God's Discipline of His Sons or of His Children. God's fatherly discipline. And if you watch. As we read through, you'll find now that at least ten times this uh, reference to discipline occurs again and again and again. And that's part of our uh, theme uh, in on the heading of the, the sermon. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, and you have forgotten the word of encouragement that addresses you as sons, my son, my child. Do not make light the Lord's discipline." And do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes everyone who accepts. He accepts as a son or a child. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father if you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline? discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of our spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best But God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled but healed Amen, that's God's word to us and a, a challenging word it is the New Testament often describes the Christian life as a race and we are called to run the race that is marked out for us It's often described as a fight to be fought, as a challenge to be embraced, and these metaphors are used liberally in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul was particularly fond of the the arena, the Olympics, and uh, he uses illustrations from the physical to describe the spiritual. For example, Physical training was an important part of Greek education. If you went to the school, then it wasn't that you could have a letter from your parents to say, our child doesn't do PE, it was part of the curriculum and you did it. Foot races were in the stadium, and and I quote from the commentary where it says this, the stadion is a distance of about 200 yards. Several of these stadia still survive uh, intact Uh, today. Uh, And the Greek stadia accommodated spectators. So if you can picture these races and these grassy slopes where the spectators would uh, be involved in urging on their particular runners. But in addition to that, the majority of sports in Greek education was um, running, boxing, um, a form of boxing that was an all out combination with wrestling and kicking uh, the two things that were barred, which are bad today are biting and gouging you saw the British lions one of the the lions being gouged and the uh, one of South Africans being sent off and rightly so and uh, some of us will remember Tyson who bit off his opponent part of his ear, so that sort of thing um, then and now that's the context when the writer here, if it is the Apostle Paul we're not sure, urges us to now run in this race interestingly, becoming a Christian therefore the assumption is that we enter the arena of life Where part of becoming a Christian, hear me well, is pain, heartache, self-discipline, sickness, sorrow, pressure, disappointment, hardship, and even death. Sometimes we get the impression, and that's perhaps why Christians complain so much, as if to say, these things shouldn't happen. Well, then you've been badly informed. It's an integral part of being a Christian. We enter into this arena. We are not now spectators, but we are the participants. And if we are going to keep on running, then we need at least two things. We need endurance, and we need encouragement. And that is why Hebrews chapter 11 now seems to pause with this link word, therefore, Now, in the light of all that's been said in chapter 11, therefore, as a consequence of all this, we now are the spiritual athletes, okay, we've been ushered, sorry, the spiritual athletes have already been ushered off the track, we are coming on, they have run the course. You have them there in Hebrews 11, and they listed. Who by faith, who by faith, and so forth. And you see, he makes the connection. Therefore, we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Now, witnesses are not spectators. The meaning is martyr. People who are involved, okay? They've borne witness. They've run in this race. So what they are doing now is urging us on, saying, keep on going. Like sometimes people say, yes, I know, I've been there. I've got the t-shirt, I've, I've got the medal. Uh, I was talking to somebody this morning in um, Cornerstone who has run 74 marathons. Can you imagine that? Patsy Baker, 74 marathons. I was talking to her this morning. And it's her intention to run 100 marathons. She asked me if I'd like to join her. <laughs> You see, the Olympic tradition was to urge people on in this race. So, you get the connection. Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, who are they? But all the people who have been mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11, who by faith, sometimes with horrendous backgrounds, great mistakes, public sins and scandals, and yet God has taken them up and used them in the race of life. So, the Christian life is not a game of hopscotch, if you like. It is a hard fought, tough minded race. The word translated race in the Greek is the word agona, agonize. And if you have in the past or whatever have tried to enter into even half a marathon, you know something of the sheer agony. The persistence. And it's a great thing, you know, when people alongside are encouraging you, urging you on. So the writer is picturing these athletes in an agonizing foot race or running for the finishing line. And they're being cheered on by the faithful example of the heroes who've gone before. Now that's the picture. I've taken time to labor that in order that you get the context. So in Hebrews chapter 11. Other people have gone before. And now we are in the arena. That's what it's all about. That's where it's at. So I'd like to leave two things with you. The first is this. You talk to anybody who's involved in a marathon or half a marathon or doing anything like that in a sporting nature. Then there's one key thing that is unseen. And it's this. It's preparation. We're going to look at this first of all the preparation for disciples, verses 1 to 4, and then secondly the principles for disciples, uh, verses 5 to 13. And that's the outline of the sermon. First of all, then preparation for disciples. If you are going into the examination room to do your GCCs or your A levels or to take an exam and you haven't done any prep, you're in big trouble. And If you are waffling in the paper that you haven't got a clue what you're talking about or writing about, you're in big trouble. If you enter into uh, a marathon or a race and you've not done preparation, you're in big trouble. The first time when I was a student in Glasgow in uh, 1970, I read a book, first time I heard the word jogging, an introduction by Roger Bannister the man who was famed in those days for doing, um, what was it? it? Yeah, that's it. And what he did was this. He gave a foreword to the book. He was encouraging people to run, to take up jogging. And uh, he gave an illustration of uh, the French Bastille Day when everybody had a holiday. And there was this chicken farmer who had battery hens and he decides to give them all a holiday, let them all out. It's a French thing to do. He said, 60% of them got out into the yard, keeled over, had heart attacks and died. They had hardly moved before. And he said, you know, the average person gets up in the morning, has a good breakfast, gets into the car, drives to work, sits at the desk all day, or drives and does things, comes home, puts the car in the garage, sits down, has a good meal, watches the soaps, goes to bed and does that, that sort of thing. Now, it may not be true, but that's Mr. and Mrs. Average, as he was saying. They decide, I've got to do something, I'm carrying too much bulk, I'm going to run. So next week they join the race, they run down, and what do they do? Induce a heart attack. Preparation is so important. You don't see it, you will see the effects of not having it. And you will also positively see the effects of preparation in your life let's look at three things then and and you can spiritualize that for yourself as you leave uh, you keep your Bibles open in front of you Hebrews chapter 12 first of all look around at the winners you're not on your own you may think to yourself here I am I'm in this situation I've never been in this before that's true others have others have look around at the winners this is what he's urging them to do Hebrews chapter twelve, verse one. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, we're in good company. They've gone before. So do you see the context in Hebrews chapter eleven? Chapter and let me point, give you one um, name that now is the buzzword around the world. If you look in Hebrews eleven and verse thirty two. He's been talking about all sorts of people who, by faith, have run in this race. And then he seems to pause. And he's running out of time, as I am. And then he says, verse 32, And what shall I say? A rhetorical question. And what shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Barak. There's a name for you. Lots of sons will be called Barak. And, of course, his mantra, Yes, we can. Yes, we can. That has gripped America in a very positive way. And spiritually as well. You see what they're saying? If they can, we can. If God was with them, God is with us. Let's do our preparation. Look around at the winners. Yes, we can. We are not spectators. It is a source of great irritation in the Christian life where people have given up on prayer, given up on being spiritually involved and often are much more critical than people who are involved and engaged in the business of seeing the church of Jesus Christ built up and strengthened. It's all we saw. Look around at the winners. Don't be spectators. Be participators. Be involved. They bear witness to us Hebrews 11, we must bear witness to a generation that is coming. Look at the winners, not the losers. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. Secondly, look at yourself if you dare. Look at yourself. And what do you see? Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. We don't do it. It's marked out for us. We need to run. We need to prepare. How do you do it? Well, look. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Do you see that? Look at yourself and ask yourself the question, what am I doing? And what is the thing that I have to get rid of? I may have to get rid of good things, doesn't mean that everything in my life is bad. But anything that hinders me, anything that hinders me and impedes my progress, the people who run in these marathons don't carry a rucksack on, the, on their backs, do they? Or wear heavy boots. You see that they have been shed of anything that would hinder them, every hindrance, even good things. The athlete doesn't choose, if you like, between what is the good and what is the bad. No. The athlete chooses what is the better and what is the best. You don't win a marathon by accident. You can't. Look at yourself with realism. And it's not a conflict between the good and the bad, but the better and the best, because there is one person who is more than worthy of our best. And let's pose the question, well, what is the sin? Well, here at least most of the commentators are agreed, and it's this. It's the sin of unbelief. And that in the context, you see, all these other people, Hebrews 11, one thing that was outstanding in their lives It was by faith. Something happened. And faith is the benchmark here. And the thing that is snapping at our heels is the opposite. It's unbelief. It's unbelief. And we allow it to creep back into our lives and impede our discipleship. Isn't it interesting that in chapter 11, 21 times, People of different backgrounds, men and women, young and old, religious, irreligious, some embroiled in immoral activity, others in pride, and so on and so forth. The one thing, the one thing that stands out, who by faith, who by faith. And the sin that clings so closely to us is unbelief. Thirdly, look at Jesus Christ. Look at verses 2 to 4. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning and shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. And there you have it again. Consider him. He says, if you haven't got it right, I make no apology. I say it again. Look to him. Look at Jesus. Look at him. And as we look to Christ, we're not only saved, but we are safe. As we look to him, Look to Jesus. There is for us a greater attitude of faith. Somehow, we put it in that song, don't we? The things of earth grow strangely dim. Well, they ought to. But it's often the opposite, isn't it? As we don't look to him, the things of this world grow incredibly desirable and clear. We are effectively walking civil wars, aren't we? Of this conflict that's in our lives. This is not a simple look or a single look. Look, consider, stand back, sit down, survey, have a good long, long look. Look at him, look at him, consider him. And then in our struggles and our heartaches we see that he, for the joy set before him, has done things for us. So what's the application Surely it's this, that we should claim the grace to persevere, to keep on going on, to not stop. A second application would be this, to remember that you're not alone. You may be the only Christian in the office, or perhaps in your family, or whatever, but you are not alone. Therefore we are surrounded by great concourse of believers. We are not alone. And lastly, and that's the point here, isn't it? Stay focused. Stay focused. Well, that's just some of the preparation that we need to do. I can't do it for you, and you can't do it for me. You have to take this on board yourself. But then secondly, what are these principles from verses 5 to 13? Principles for discipleship. Okay, so we've done our preparation. If you're going to prepare for an exam, you need to get into the examination room. If you're preparing for a marathon, you've got to get on the track. You're not just preparing, preparing. Now, this is, this is where it's at, if you like, as, as we work it out. And there are just three things that come out of these verses. Just look at them. You'll see that in this principle of discipleship, there are relationships. You're not alone. Look at the, this relationship. Look at verse 5. And you have forgotten the word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. You'll see there's a footnote there, a quotation from Proverbs 3, 11, and 12. And this is what he says. So he uses the Old Testament now as, and, and to illustrate something. He says, my son, do not make light the Lord's discipline. And don't lose heart when he rebukes you or corrects you. Because the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son or as a child. He has a relationship and, and, and it's deep and it's trustworthy. How many of us are thankful to parents who may say to their children, You are not going to thank me now. I will give you ten years. Life's like that. But you know, today, so many parents, peer pressure, are, are under such that they give in too much to their children. And it seems that discipline is the unacceptable face of a Dickensian era. Do you know, discipline is the highest compliment between a parent and a child. That's hard to swallow, isn't it? And and equally, from Scripture, it's the highest compliment and points to a legitimate and true relationship. He he presses the point very hard here and uses this word that, that if you're refusing this, you're not an authentic child of God. Here is a relationship that is forged On something that has massive implications in the future. And by the way, this isn't uh, discipline while you're a child and then while uh, you're a teenager and then when you're you're on your own. No, no. This is God's discipline for us, for me and you, for the rest of our lives. The rest of our lives. Secondly, not only relationship, and this is a very humbling thing, but ownership. Ownership. God in his infinite grace and goodness puts a stamp of ownership upon us. Moreover, look at verse 9. We all have had human fathers, I hope so anyway, who disciplined us and retrospectively we respect them. How much more should we submit to the father of our spirits? Look, and live, and live. It has so much to say to our society, but it's just got as much to say to our church. Church discipline was one of the key things that came out of the Reformation that pointed to an authentic church with the backdrop of the Roman church so indiscipline. Ownership. And from verse 9, the reasoning is just like this. From the lesser to the greater from a human father to a heavenly father for one who disciplines for time to one who is doing it for eternity and out of love and loyalty now then i submit to the father of lights and i live christ has prior claim on my life and it's good and acceptable and perfect. And the key to it is I submit to his discipline. And lastly, fellowship. But you see verses 10 to 11. Ten times this word discipline is used. Discipline, I suppose, is a bit like um, the secateurs of the gardener. I visited my niece in London and she's put in some apple trees and they've just been there for uh, 18 months and I said Helen you have to take off half of that they were long and leggy and I said if you do they're going to bend and break if you want this tree to do something you've got half of it taken away so she gets the secretaries out between us we shape it, she said you are shaping this tree, don't let the tree shape you shape it for the future. And you need to give it ten years at least. That doesn't fit well with a quick fix society, does it? But you know, God has time on his hands. He's in eternity. We are the creatures who are frenetic. Who want the quick fix and the easy way so often. So you see in, in verse 10. Our fathers disciplined us for a little while. While we were under the roof of the house. As they thought best they were imperfect. And maybe some were harsh and some were not. Whatever. But God disciplines us for our good. that we Why? That we might share his holiness. That we might be more like his son Jesus Christ. I think that's why Jesus used that uh, analogy so beautifully. When he said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Oh, that's good. That's good. And then, well, let me read it to you. I am the vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off, if you like, he disciplines, he prunes every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. So that he will have even more fruit and I might be even more fruitful. The process is painful, the end result is productive. I think the analogies are rather obvious, aren't they? Painful, yes. Productive, yes. No gain without pain, we say. And that is true. Discipline for disciples. Uh, just last week we went to somebody's home, who remained nameless, and they said to me, uh, come and look at my tomatoes. And uh, I looked and said, Oh, dear. Now, I don't want to waffle on about tomatoes, but you have the main stem. And tomatoes grow on a truss. And the truss comes out like that, And you have to take out these little... Um, thank you. Shh, yeah, those things. <laughs> if you don't, they just grow and grow and grow. You have a great big bush. And you probably have little bits of tomato and it's all leaves. And it's laggy. And I said, are you really willing for me to do something here? You have to cut your losses. So I began to snap here and cut here, there, until I had a pile. And I said, now, you should get something. But if I hadn't come, you'd have had very little. And I, I genuinely felt sorry, for, because this was their first attempt growing tomatoes. I did say to them, next time get bush tomatoes and you won't need to take all these things out. But these are the ones you've got? And it seemed incredibly ruthless. Big pile of uh, growth that should be into fruit rather than leaves that's wasted. And you see, God comes to us and you say, I don't think that's right. But he knows what he's doing. He does know what he's doing. And if he takes things out of your life and it seems harsh, I can tell you, it is for your good. Trust him. He's a lot of experience. Trust him. Principles for discipleship, a relationship that is deepened. Ownership that is authentic rather than illegitimate. And a fellowship that is so fruitful that says, God is at work in that person's life. I know it. And I see it. And of course the ultimate purpose. As we think about life as a race. The security that we have. Of belonging to our heavenly father. The assuring of sonship. Of being a child of God. That's where we start. You are my child by grace. And then there's this period of maturity, of growing, of deepening, of shaping of character. How often would the Spirit say to us, when are you going to grow up? Why are you being difficult? Why are you still carrying these grudges? Why won't you move on? Do you see what I'm saying? Sadly, I have known people who have taken these things to the grave. Maturity, a deepening of our character. And as we embrace the greater, the lesser will fall away. And lastly, what's it all for? That we might conform to Jesus. The stretching of our love as we embrace him. All of this is done that we might share in His holiness and be like Him. We're going to sing the doxology as we close our service. And it brings together so many things that we've been thinking about tonight. Discipline for disciples. Let's allow the Spirit to work in us and shape us and make us fruitful in the coming days. Now may the God of peace Uh, I'm sorry, this comes from um, Hebrews chapter 13 verses 20 and 21 so effectively we are singing together uh, this uh, final doxology now may the God of peace who raised up from the dead the one great shepherd of the sheep Jesus our head and then notice this may he equip our souls and work in us his will that his good pleasure in our lives, he may fulfill. And of course it is through Jesus Christ, our Lord.